Welcome, everybody, to episode 38 of the Brown and Black podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we talk about race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Mike, we just landed a rover on Mars. You know, it's funny that you you mentioned that because I have to say with everything that's happening here, people literally standing in line for fresh water, people freezing in their apartments, their their senator goes off to Cancun, but <laughs> we're on Mars. The rover has landed on Mars. It says so much about what our priorities are, I, I, I have to say, and, and the priorities of the powers that be. Texas is Latino, but Texas is mostly white. So then if it's mostly white, then why isn't, you know, every single agency in the government there to help if they're mostly white people living in Texas? Because this is what we hear about, you know, black uh, cities, black states. Oh, nobody goes there. Remember, like when George Bush and Katrina, it just takes forever because they're black. But what happens when a state is white? Because it's the cultural divide is not black and white. That's the way it's portrayed on media, though. But it is the way it's portrayed on media. And that's the way the elite. And when I say the elite, I'm talking about the rich would like it portrayed. The, if you see what's happening in Texas now, the narrative, oh, it's it's these things that you want that you think will make your life better. That's why we're having uh, a power shortage. It's, it's it's the windmills. When that's only like 10 or 15% of the energy there, it's really that they privatize the electrical company down there. And so they're giving the cheapest they can, making the most money. They get no help from the government. So certain people are making a ton of money. So they have nothing in place for any potential disaster. Why? That costs money. It's unregulated. But it speaks to a bigger picture, Mike. And that bigger picture is that this country this country's infrastructure is one of the worst ones. It, it, it almost looks like a third world country infrastructure. Absolutely. Because if you really think about it, what do we manufacture here? We buy everything from somewhere else. There's nothing we manufacture better than anywhere else on the planet except entertainment. Yeah, everything we get is from 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 China, Mexico, the Middle East. That's the thinking. But again, this is a country that's built on slavery. So it's inbred. It's in our DNA to take advantage of those who are less fortunate. It's in our DNA for the poor to suffer. Because whether we think we're debt slaves or slaves to something else, whether we're incarcerated, if we're not at a certain level of income, we do not matter. Amazon is another example of what you just said. Did you hear what happened with them? Supposedly, some some documents were leaked recently, some internal Amazon documents, uh, a small group of sellers on its India platform, and they use them to get around government restrictions meant to protect mom and pop retailers. So here's what I'm understanding. Big me, big companies, big tech, what they do is they smother you. Just just imagine this, Mike. All right. Put 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 the trailer music on. Here we go. My hands are coming close to your neck. And I am squeezing and squeezing until you're no longer breathing. You're gone. <laughs> That's Amazon. That's Amazon on every mom and pop small business company 
in America. And now they're doing it in India. And they're going to do it everywhere else. They must be stopped, Mike. I didn't even realize you were talking about that one. I thought you were talking about where all of the Amazon delivery people, they kept something like... $250 $250 million worth of tips that they tell you when you order from Amazon, 100% of this tip goes to your uh, you know, driver or whoever's delivering. And in reality, they were keeping that money. This is Amazon. This was a few weeks ago. The fact that they paid no taxes, the fact that they've you know worked these workers, they wouldn't let them unionize. They are everything you said, the snidely whiplash of corporations right now because they're the biggest they know they can act with impunity. Look at Ted Cruz. His people are without power. Is he out there figuring out ways, talking to other states, trying to get help? No, he's in Cancun. Dude, this is what they said about Andrew Yang, you know, um, who's living in New Paltz. <laughs> and in the middle of all this stuff that's happening in New York, the dude's like, I'm not going to be a part of that. <laughs> exactly. I, but, but, but this speaks to elitism, you know, this speaks, this speaks to the wealth, the haves and the have nots. I've been saying this over and over again. If you have money, you just finished saying it. If you have money in this country... You will not suffer the punishment of being poor. And it's funny because I don't even know if middle class fits into that. I, I, I think that they save themselves, but barely, you know, it's, it's if you're poor, ah, God have mercy on you. If you're poor, you really don't matter. If you're middle class, you're contributing, you're helping line the pockets of the upper class. I mean, that's the way things are set up. You're only going to achieve so much. Any successful person will tell you, you'll never get rich working for somebody else. Well, we have a great show for you today. Uh, Randall Park, arguably one of the most famous Asian-American faces in Hollywood. Uh, He's also a very popular actor. Uh, We had a chance to speak with him. Now, Mike, something we haven't really said out loud, but we should make note of this, that Randall Park's visit to our show is a historic moment because he is the the first non-black or Latino guest we have ever had on our show. He is. And you know, what's great because we talked to him about everything from Sanford and Son to Pat Morita, and, and we talk about representation, but for him to come at a time when Asian Americans are literally being attacked out of uh, xenophobia and frustration, clearly that, that people feel justified in venting whatever their frustration about the society is in regards to the pandemic. And that speaks to me about this age of unaccountability. Like America's never been accountable, but we're in an age, Mm -hmm. a new age of unaccountability. You know, Trump was not impeached by his own people. And the, the hypocrisy is so thick, you could walk on it with everything that all of the McConnell and all these people, all of these politicians and everything they're saying, and, and I'm not leaving the Democrats out of this either, because speaking about Asians and Latinos and talking about everything we were just talking about in terms of classism and elitism, it was back in 2019 at the Iowa Asian Latino Coalition that Joe Biden made that speech about 
We have this notion that somehow if you're poor, you cannot do it. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids, wealthy kids, black kids, Asian kids. No, I really mean it, but think how we think about it. And the way he spoke to it, I mean, everybody was in an uproar, but the way he spoke to it, and again, this is at an Asian-Latino coalition, suggests everything about how those in a certain class look at those in another class. Well, there's something else. It's other than us. We live in an age where there's such a disconnect that tone deaf, blind spot, it, it can't even, it doesn't do any justice. While all this is happening, Reddit, yes. Robin Hood are testifying right now before Congress over the GameStop stock rally, which is also something that at some point we need to, 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 to just take some time to talk about cryptocurrency. Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, Elon Musk, MasterCard, uh, Goldman Sachs that just got into the game for personal investing. Um, there, there, it feels, Mike, like there is this new reawakening for people to to find out more. There's this new mass interest in investing, in finance, in making money, but. But but not the way that it's currently centralized. You know, Wall Street is centralized. The government is central. Everything is centralized and only a few have access to it. And I think what happened with the Robin Hood situation with GameStop, which I think eight there's there's eight productions being made into movies and TV shows of what just happened. They're currently in Congress just trying to figure out what finance will look in the future because this decentralized alternative secondary financial system in America seems to be taking off, Mike. And um, the future of America, man, listen, I, we're in the wild, wild west right now. Nothing seems to make sense. Whatever forecasts and projections people are throwing out. Look, I'm in my class right now. I just, uh, this is my second week uh, teaching my course on entertainment journalism. And we, ha I, I literally had to re restart from scratch my syllabus to be able to speak to what's happening today. We're not reading from a textbook from 1970s journalism. It has to be created for today. It has to, because if not, you, you know, I'm asking student questions to see what they think as well, because we're kind of all making it up together. You said a couple of things that are very important about, you know, why certain things are taking off. Cryptocurrency, a lot of people don't even really know what cryptocurrency and Bitcoins are. Uh, it, it is very hard to know. So, and that is how Wall Street is for a lot of people. I, I do want to go to a quick clip because you are actually on my radio show and we did a show on cryptocurrency and we, and we defined it. And, and I don't think we could do better than we did on that show. Because we were speaking with director Alex Winter, who had directed a film on cryptocurrency called Trust Machine, the story of blockchain. Alex Winter, who is also Keanu Reeves' partner in the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure series. A Bitcoin is a specific cryptocurrency. It's a protocol that allows you to exchange all kinds of things digitally that's wrapped around what's called a Bitcoin. So it's really a piece of code that has a certain value or is assigned to certain information and that can be transacted digitally and instantly, fairly instantly, which obviously has all kinds of uses and has, has been growing rapidly despite the price fluctuations. It's been growing rapidly since it was introduced in, in late 07. A blockchain is literally 
the underlying foundation of that cryptocurrency. So the blockchain is literally a verifiable digital ledger. It is literally the map that that supports that cryptocurrency. It is the structure that allows that that cryptocurrency to be moved around. But that understanding is not something that most people have of cryptocurrency. So same thing with Wall Street. To me, if you're poor, you play the lottery, you go to Atlantic City, you hope to win big. But if you have a lot of money, you do a different kind of gambling. It's something that people who are poor really don't understand, unless you're a day trader, penny stocks. I mean, you, you may give it to somebody who understands how to do it, and that's your broker. That's your financial person. They know what they're doing. They're hopefully making money for you. You don't even really know what they're doing. They're following stocks. They're up and down. It's all like legalized betting. But behind the scenes, those who are allowed to bet, the concept of, of short stocks and all of that for most people, the, I, I could be speaking a, another language. I keep on getting calls from friends of mine. We're just catching up on stuff. You know, one's in Japan. The other one's in L.A. I uh, have another friend uh, in Jersey. And every time I have a conversation with one of these guys, they're like, Yo, so um, are you in Bitcoin or not? Are, are you buying? And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to buy something just to shut you guys up. So I got this app called Coinbase and I bought $50 of Ethereum. Now, why did I buy Ethereum? It's because it's a second alternate to Bitcoin. And dude, it's already, I bought 50 bucks and it's already up to $61. So does it work? Yes. Am I fully invested in putting all my savings into this? No, because the harsh reality is that when Bit, I think it was in 2017, when Bitcoin went from 800 to like 32,000, so many rich people, so many people got rich, they ended up moving to Puerto Rico. And you could read this in the New York Times, you know, uh, it's a well-known thing within that, that subgroup. And dude, a year later, it crashed to almost nothing. Everybody lost their money. And so I'm very aware of that. And I just feel like I just don't have the bandwidth at the moment to fully wrap my brain around it. Because if I have to do it, it's going to have to be an all-consuming thing. And I just don't have the time for that. Right well, now. you're absolutely right about all-consuming because I have a friend who is doing it. And she's kind of semi-retired at this point. I don't want to say playing, but she's investing her nest egg into these various Bitcoins. And she's got somebody who's advising her who's also got money in, in the same cryptocurrencies and, and playing these games. And, you know, a month or two ago, lost a bunch of money, but then was able to get it back. Ooh. All of it, and it's it's like a casino. Mike, I can't seem to stop being a part of Clubhouse. I, 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 dude, Clubhouse has done something to me that has awakened something within me, man, that I, I didn't know I needed. Okay. The way I've described this to you is this it's like a cult like experience, man. You know, it's like going to a Tony Robbins show or an Oprah event where there's this. You've been to the Essence Music Festival? No. 
So I've been, and you go there, bro, it's kumbaya for a whole week. It's just that clubhouse is kumbaya every day. There is no negativity. It just doesn't seem real, man. And it's become therapy for a lot of people. Uh, There are no consequences. There are no business. There are no ads. You go into these rooms. People are just constantly supporting you. We're having real talk. The real talk right now is not happening in news. It's not happening on MSNBC. It's not happening on television. It's not happening on radio. It's happening at Clubhouse. The most real, candid, open conversations, the taboo shit, all those conversations that you're like, yo, should we be talking about it? I just feel very awkward, like I'm scared to talk about these things. That's what's happening in Clubhouse right now. And I'm addicted to it. Uh, um, I'm also noticing that every time I talk, I'm getting like 20 followers right off the bat. And it's interesting I've been stuck like on my Instagram, like within the 4,000 range for like a year. And and again, I get it. I I don't post every day. I tell, I give the finger to the algorithm because I don't want the algorithm to manipulate me. I manipulate it. And I do think that there's a value in being anonymous, you know, Um, anonymous in the sense that I'm not a celebrity like a Justin Timberlake, but look what Justin Timberlake is going through. Look what Janet Jackson, the most celebrated black female of our generation. You know, look what she went through. Look what Britney Spears has to go through because she's a celebrity. Do you really want to be a celebrity? Ask yourself that because there's a lot of consequences that come along with that. Why can't you just be just fine with what you got? I'm I'm starting to get to that point where I'm like, you know, what? this currency of followers, I'm done with it. If I get more followers because I'm being true and genuine, dude, then it's organic, but I'm not intentionally going for it. And I'm loving it. They're showing me love. I'm showing people love. The whole platform is about value, about sharing, about being listened to, about existing and someone recognizing your existence. What's been your experience with Clubhouse? Well, first of all, I think Clubhouse needs to hire you, okay? You're like, <laughs> and now like an here's Jack Rico is stowing the virtues of but Clubhouse. But I'm sure I'm not the only person talking no, like this. No, obviously, no. Listen, people get addicted to Clubhouse. People are in Clubhouse like every day. During the workday, they're supposed to be doing other stuff, but they're, they're secretly listening to conversations. It's just a Again, lot of intellectual, academic conversations about business, about anything. And it's like the whole world. Dude, and it, the Android people even haven't registered yet because they're not allowed to te- technologically speaking so all you're getting are these iphone users i think apple should do something with club i think you know what apple should buy buy clubhouse Clubhouse. yes of course they should come on if they don't they're foolish because Mm -hmm. then it it'll go over to android and it'll get polluted with those android users but they created the podcast yes they did and so if you were to take the creator of the podcast and you buy clubhouse which is the Right now, the preeminent audio social app before Facebook and Twitter um, and Mark Cuban's Fireside come into the game. They're already starting their own versions of Clubhouse. So, yeah, man, I've just been having a lot of fun. Um, If you guys want to follow us, Mike and I are we're still in the development phase of trying to get a panel going. And we're just trying to put our finger in what there's just the news cycle is so fast. We're trying to get something topical that's a little bit more evergreen. That way everybody can chip in. And uh, and we'll let you guys know about it soon. But in the meantime, this was one of the best conversations we've had in 39 episodes. Randall Park kind of blew it out of the water, Mike. I 100% agree. As a matter of fact, what I enjoyed 
in talking with Randall Park is just how refreshing it is to talk about race, culture, identity with someone who has similar but very, very different issues and at different stages. You know, you can kind of judge different minorities, like what stage they are in the pecking order socially and, and how they're being perceived and what stereotypes are trending and all of that. And all of this at the same time, while what's going on, I feel I feel it's a vital conversation. Absolutely. And so here, let, let me set the stage for all of you. A black guy, a Latino guy and an Asian guy walk into a bar. What kind of conversation will they have? This it's our conversation with Randall Park. Little one, I'm going to let you in on a secret, okay? Santa is Asian. So Santa is not fat? Oh, thank you. <laughs> but no, why would Santa be fat? You know how much exercise it is lugging around these presents and climbing up and down these chimneys? It's like freaking CrossFit. I just don't want to have one of those weird stepdad, stepson relationships where you, like, despise me and want to make my life a living hell. Uh, Plus, you seem really nervous right now. You're making me perspire. Oh, no. We're cool. As long as my mom's happy. Oh, I'm making her happy. What's that? Uh, uh, w with jokes. I, I tell her a lot of jokes. <laughs> James E. Wu, FBI. Would you mind repeating your claim about Westview to my colleague here? No such place. I'm sorry, what, what town are you from? Eastview. What are we looking at here? Is it an alternate reality, time travel, some cockamamie social experiment? It's a sitcom, a 1950s sitcom. But why? Hey man, we're working with the same scarcity of intel. So you're saying the universe created a sitcom starring two Avengers? I've seen some other interviews. You talked about how much you love sitcoms, and that's a big part of what WandaVision is. But yeah. one of the best things about sitcoms for me as a person of color, that's comedy and sitcoms. Is th Those are the first black shows. Those are the first shows with, with minorities, with, with people of color. And yeah. I know you've mentioned uh, Sanford and Son as a favorite. Oh, my uh, and <laughs> He wants to see it as a reboot. He wants to see the remake. Well, of the yeah, we see. I saw that. Yeah. But but We're definitely in top three. I'm just wondering for you as a comedian, did you think you'd be able to have the kind of career you have and get the diversity of roles? How do you feel being where you are now? You know, when I was a kid watching these sitcoms it, it didn't even really occur to me that there weren't asians in it i was just enjoying them watching them and just not thinking about that i wasn't conscious of that really until i got to college and and when i got to college is when i discovered acting and writing and and that's where the seed was planted that this is what i wanted to do but i really felt like coming from theater that I wasn't going to make a living in film and television because the opportunities just weren't there. But it was something that I could probably do for fun, maybe maybe get by on it, but really I, I'd have to do other things on top of it. And I was happy to do that because I just loved performing and, and writing and I loved comedy so much that it was kind of like this thing where I was like, okay, I'm not going to be rich. I'm not going to be famous or, or any of these things, but I'm totally fine with that because I just love performing and I had made peace with that. Mm. Um, and even well into my acting career, you know, it, it started to shift a little bit. I, I just wanted to be a working actor. You know, that's all I wanted to do. Just just 
get by if commercials were it. I'd make a living just doing commercials and I'd be happy doing <laughs> that. Uh, uh, and, and that was for a, a good part of my career. That was the mind state. And, uh, and, then, and then things started opening up. You know, I credit folks like Pat Morita, just everybody just doing their part. And next thing I knew, I was on a show. You know, I was on a show and I did not expect that show to, to I did not expect that pilot to get picked up the series. I just did it. That's me, your boy, Eddie Wong. Check it. 11 years old and moving from D.C. to Orlando. I saw the sign and it opened up my eyes. I saw the sign. That's my dad. He loved everything about America. Fulon bought into the American dream. I don't know why we have to move. So your father can own a cowboy restaurant. It's called Cattleman's Ranch Steakhouse. And I've grown to love it like the daughter we wished Evan had been. This is why we left our family and friends. Exactly. This is why we left everything we know to come to a place where we know nothing and where the humidity is not good for my hair. It just like was inconceivable to me. I felt like it was a you know gesture towards diversity, you know, and uh, and that's all it was. That's all it was. Ugh. And as we were making the show, I was like, "This is good," but there's no way they're going to pick it up. <laughs> no way. There's you know none of us are famous on the on the show, and we're all Asian. It's it just can't be done. It just can't be done in this industry. I knew enough about the industry at that point. What did you know exactly, Randall? That you just felt that that was never going to happen. Well, number one, I'd never seen it up until that point, aside <laughs> from Margaret Cho. Margaret Cho's All-American Girl 20 years before. I'm going to start. Eric, we will eat when all members of the family are present. In old country, one sit at the table 12 hours waiting for great-grandfather Kim to join us. <laughs> Turn out he died overnight. <laughs> You get cold, great grandfather cold, Patty. <laughs> Why don't I go check on her? Stuart, your sister knows what time we eat. Of course she does. I'm sorry, everyone. I'm afraid I let my tummy take precedence over tradition. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, we're probably going to see cycle sluts from Hell at the Plex. No, I will not go to the Rialto. Well, for one thing, they don't carry the large size good and plenty. And for another, their floors are always sticky. And I don't even know why it's sticky. It's like tar or something. And so... I gotta go. And just hearing the stories about the trials and tribulations of that show, it made me think, oh... I remember as, as uh, you know, I, I think I was in college watching that show and, and after getting canceled, I was like, well, that, that was our chance. It's not going to happen again. And it didn't happen again for 20 years. But I had heard, uh, especially once I started acting, I had heard of attempts at it, shows in development. You know, they were trying to make these <laughs> uh, uh, shows and, and they would never see the light of day. And, and I figured that we were just another one of those, you know, even though I was like, oh, man, this is this is really special. And, and, and we actually, you know, we barely got, got through. I forgot what exactly happened, but we kind of squeezed through the cracks just to, just to get on the air. And we had a, we had a, a 13 episode first season and we were, uh, but we were a mid season show. It's an uphill battle for a mid season show. And, uh, so I was like, okay, this is incredible. One season. 
This is incredible. <laughs> we'll do our one season, and then and then we'll we'll be we'll be kicked out the lot. And, uh, and but then somehow we just kept going. It is a testament to to all the all the work that's been done before, but and and all the work at that time to uh, make people aware of the importance of showing traditionally underrepresented folks on on TV. And you know that fight still goes on right now. But yeah, we just we just came at the right place, right time, and and had the right group of people. You know, Randall, uh, listening to you, Mike and I on this show, Brown and Black, these are the discussions we're always having, you know, and to listen to you is listening, but replacing Asian with Latinos. Currently, there are no Latino shows on Broadcast Network. The last one was One Day at a Time, and that was like added to CBS, and then it was knocked out, Grand Hotel, you know, it's just, you can go on. It just doesn't exist. So imagine how we feel by not seeing ourselves represented, yet we're still uh, 20% of the population, 60 million Hispanics live in the United States, just don't see themselves represented. Why do you think, from your perspective, why do you think Latino stories aren't being greenlit on TV? How come no one wants to see or no one wants to bet on Latino storytelling today? That's a good question. Here's one thing that I've learned, especially since we've, since I started this production company. One of the challenges that we have is, you know, in this industry, it's all about packaging. You know, they don't mm-hmm. even care about, I mean, the idea is important, but what really gets a show, you know, at least even in development, let alone uh, a pilot greenlit or whatever, is, is the package. What stars do you bring? Uh, to that package, you know, along with that idea, what what famous director do you attach? And because we traditionally have not gotten the opportunities to have a number of great directors that we could bring on as an attachment, the number of stars that are quote unquote meaningful to the industry to 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 attach that where 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 the you know the the heads of these studios will be like yes yes we we need that you know that's that's you know you know and I and I found that the stars in 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 our community like the legends in our community are often not they don't even know who they are sometimes. Wow. And I'm like, that's our, that's, that, that, that person's a God to us. (laughs) And you don't even know who that person is, you know? And I feel that that's one element as to why I think we haven't seen a, 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 a Latinx show, you know, it's because there's a history of just not giving people an opportunity to get to a level where, you know, you could attach them to a show and that's it. We, we need to green light that show, you know, like that's one angle, but there, I'm sure there's a, a lot more. I'm sure it's, it's, it's complex and uh, um, opportunity begets opportunity. And, and when you, when you didn't have the opportunity to begin with, how can you get to a place where you're, you get more opportunity now where you get more shows? I mean, it's absurd. Even, even, I mean, one day at a time is great when there's only one show and, and, and a community has, has so many perspectives, so many, you know, no community is a monolith, but if you, if you look on TV, you would think it's a monolith because it's (laughs) like that one show has to represent everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, to me, that's the, uh, the challenge, you know, that, that we're up against. It's, it's when you have a history of, of, uh, of underrepresentation or, or or misrepresentation, it's tough to get voices heard. 
history of, of representation is a lot of things. I've always felt that comedy in many ways for an actor is sort of like a secret weapon. Like if you can do drama, it's great. But if you can do comedy, you'll be working forever. I like to ask comedic actors, uh, and, and I'd love to get your sense of it, especially ones who started with stand-up. Why do you think it's easier for a comedic actor to make the transition to doing drama, whether you're Tom Hanks or Bill Murray or whoever, and for audiences then to, to take you seriously? But it's not so easy for that dramatic actor to be funny, because we've all mm. seen that dramatic actor we love try to be funny, and it doesn't work so that's one of your thoughts on that oh yeah Uh, and that's real interesting i do feel like just especially with with stand-up and with and with comedy in general there has to be an element of drama in it in order for the comedy to work you know when you're setting up a joke if you're doing an act out you have to make it real or else the punchline doesn't hit you know what i mean not all stand-ups or comedic people can do like real good drama, but I think a lot of them can because it, it's kind of innate. It's an innate part of comedy, I think. And uh, whereas I don't necessarily feel that dramatic acting always has to be comedic, like comedic acting always, to me always has to be dramatic uh, to a degree. I don't know. That's my theory, but uh, no, no, that's a, that's an interesting theory. Yeah, that's a good that's a good thought. The thing to think about. Yeah, uh, Randall. So Minari has been involved in a lot of controversy that it's gotten the national conversation about whether Minari is an American film or a Korean yeah. film. And to me, it's a movie that to me represents the American dream of the immigrant coming into the United States and assimilating and becoming you know, an American. But even yeah. uh, Lee has said, hey, listen, that's, that was not the intentionality that I wanted to tell with his story. I didn't want to do an American dream story. So you have the director right. saying that this isn't an American dream story, but you have all the critics and everybody that watches it feeling like this is the American dream and it's maybe yeah. redefined. I wanted to ask yeah. you, what do you believe today is the American dream? Oh, gosh, you guys are you guys are asking <laughs> great questions and deep questions. <laughs> I think the American dream is um, well. It's a, you know it's a lot of things to a lot of different people, and and uh, I think for me it, it's a combination of those, I guess, typical ideas of what the American dream is in terms of you know the immigrant story, the working hard and against all odds, finding a life in this new place. I think all of that is a part of it for me, but I, I think it's also the, the the freedom to be yourself, to not necessarily have to fit into any kind of boxes that people try to put you in because that's not necessarily who you are, you know, or you're, or that's a part of you, but that's, that's a small, small part of you. There's so much more. To me, that I, I think the root of what the American dream means is somewhere in that, just the, the, the freedom to, to, to be yourself. Um, well, that's actually kind of the irony of America, that that's the dream everybody comes here for, but then that becomes their biggest problem. Everybody wants to come here to fulfill their dreams, and like we don't want to admit. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, you know, you mentioned before uh, about you know no culture is a is a monolith, but 
to to most people, they really don't know the difference between Korean, Japanese, Chinese. It's just all Asian to them. Uh, yeah. But in some ways, I think for Koreans, you know, with the exception in the last couple of years, Parasite and people, oh, that's a Korean film. Oh, this is what they yeah. make. There isn't a specific narrative. If you live in New York, you know, there are a lot of delis that Koreans own. But yeah. other than that, you don't really know. So in a way, it's almost a clean slate. You can kind of define now as a Korean American, you know, what it is to be Korean. What are your thoughts on that? And especially as, you know, you say you started a production company. To mm-hmm. me, that's like taking control of the stories you mm-hmm. want to hold. Mm-hmm. So w- what do you think about the kind of stories you can tell? And what do you think about that whole notion that maybe most people don't really have too much idea about what could they don't even they couldn't name a Korean dish if they had to. <laughs> right, right, you know? right, right. For me, it's not a clean slate just because I, right. I grew up <laughs> Koreans. And I've seen so, you know, I grew up around Koreans that are, are, are so different from one another. And it, it, to me, it, in my head, it's just such a, in, in and of itself, just a diverse group. But I do think that in, in terms of the production company, like my, my instinct is to tell truthful stories, honest stories, preferably comedic, because I just, I, I just love comedy, but, but to represent the gamut of experiences in, in telling these stories, as opposed to, the one that people know, you know, like Crazy Rich Asians comes out, becomes a hit. The next pilot season, you you know, every show about Asian right, people, right. About rich Asian people, you know, like, and uh, and now you got these Bling Empire, uh, you got the, the House of Hoes, you got all these reality shows about mega rich Asians, and to me, like, that's that's great, that's fine, but it's also not the entire story. Not only that, to me, in, in a way, it, it's rooted a little bit in the model minority myths, kind of like, oh, why are these people so excited to tell these stories? As opposed to like a Minari, or as opposed to like stories of at least more true to my upbringing, you know, that, that's what we want to do as a production company. We, we want to tell not just one side of the story, but to tell stories that reflect myself and other people and, and, and our upbringing. And, and uh, but also like we want to create bridges with other communities and tell stories that, you know, I mean, my upbringing was was extremely diverse here in, in L.A. You know, you just you don't see You don't see a lot of that with Asian folks. It's always like just Asian folks, you know, which I think is great, too, and important. But for me, it's like I, my friend. My friends ran the gamut. You know, we were like a Benetton ad, you know. (laughs) I was actually just going to ask you about that. What is your relationship with uh, brown and black people in your life? I know that you were a part of a gang called Illigan, Jose Ramirez. Uh Oh, uh -oh. Oh, wait a minute. These are like my best friends growing up, you know, and it's like, what? What? Like every ring, like literally, (laughs) like, Every race was was in that group, but that's where, but that's the part of LA I grew up in, you know. So and what was so what was, was growing up like that like? Because not everybody gets to grow up in a multicultural environment. To me, it was I a sitcom. It. it was a sitcom. <laughs> it was a sitcom. <laughs> it was a sitcom. And these friends, I'm I'm friends with. They were brothers. To me, it was an idyllic upbringing, you know, because go to. Kevin's house have Jamaican food. We go to Rob's house have have Mexican. You know, it was like, and it wasn't a thing. But we were conscious about race, and you know, and we, you know, we would talk about it and, and joke about it. But it, it, again, it wasn't a thing in terms of like our the, how much we loved each other. So yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of who I am, and 
the, the things that I value and the things that I love. And, and uh, I mean, I shouldn't even be proud of that because that's just what it is. But <laughs> I am proud of that, you know, because you don't see that a lot. Wow. Being part of something that so many people will see. I want to know your thoughts on superhero movies, science fiction, because I feel science fiction, and that's what superhero movies are to me. Uh, Science fiction and comedy have something in common, and they both are talking about the human condition in a way that's not hitting you over the head. I think every comedian is in many ways, you know, a cultural critic. So what are your thoughts on being part of something so big and so popular? I mean, I love it. I love it just as a Marvel fan. And I'm not just saying this because I'm I'm in the projects. Uh, I'm saying this because I genuinely love 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 the projects that that come out of Marvel. I mean, I don't know the business well enough to know if this is true, but I feel like Marvel seems to be the most intentional, you know, about getting different faces on the screen because everyone seems to love Marvel you know, the, the movies and, and, and now, now the TV shows that, yeah, I think that, I think that's, that's important. It's important for kids to see that some kids, they don't have the upbringing that I had, but they'll be able to see these shows and, and see folks who don't look like anyone around them or themselves and, and, uh, and to love these characters. And, you know, I, I don't think that's the be all to end all, but I do think that that's an important, important service for these people who, who may not have the same diverse surroundings that I did. Yeah, I just think it I just think and also I just think it's cool. You know, I just think it's like, it's fun. And and to see the fan engagement, you know, just fans are so into it, you know, and uh, yeah, it's ridiculous. (laughs) 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 It's so crazy. But these fans are so smart, too. They like break down things and like, have these theories. And and I just think it's Yeah, you did that card trick with CGI. We know you did. I did that card trick. Everyone's been asking you about that. It's a fan theory. It's a fan theory. (laughs) Yeah, but I love that. I love that. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you one last question. Obviously, uh, the vaccine is almost here, which means that movie theaters might reopen again, but the streaming services looks like they're here to stay. We might not return back. They might not be able to see their movies on the big screen exclusively. They might start seeing them at home. As an actor, how do you feel about this new hybrid business between streaming and theaters? Are are theaters going away? Are they going to become just luxury venues for the wealthy to go eat their foods, you know, uh, lie on couches? How do you see this new transformation in media and entertainment colliding together for 2021 and onward? Well, 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 for me, for me personally, it just, you know, as a, as a, again, working actor, I don't care, man. (laughs) So you're not a purist. You're not like Quentin Tarantino and Michael Moore and Nolan. And what are you talking about streaming? Hell no. Hell no. I'm just like, I just want to work, you know, (laughs) Uh, that's that, that's that immigrant uh, mentality. Absolutely. We know that, man. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, but as far as like predictions, I mean, I, 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 I feel like, like this is all this was all inevitable right i mean this is like bound to happen i don't and i don't think theater is gonna like die completely i think i'm sure there's gonna be movie theaters you know um i don't know yeah i mean maybe it will end up being these r- real kind of experiences that are uh, highly exclusive and whatnot i don't know how i feel about that watching from home 
is it, it's just it, it it was inevitable mm-hmm. it was bound to happen. it's not gonna go backwards right you know but again i i don't care either way <laughs> <laughs> big randall little randall it doesn't matter all right mike i leave the last word yeah. with you my friend uh well the last word i guess i have to say i think i think it says a lot about your career and your talent that you're not just in one universe but you're in two Universities. It's insane. Only a handful of actors are Come in on. both universes. Hey, Come on, DC Marvel. That's pretty what? big. What? He's so hey, humble about a, it. Yeah, I'm no, it's great. I love hero. it. I'm not a superhero in each <laughs> but you're one. In yeah, them. so very but you could be. You could be. Who knows? <laughs> Next up, Star Wars. Who knows? Who knows? Right. Card right. trick me. <laughs> <laughs> That's who I. Those cards, right? Gambit, yeah. Gambit, exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, Randall, thank you so much for being on the Brown and Black podcast. We appreciate your time, uh, and yes. we're we're fans, man. We're we're watching oh, everything man, you're doing, it. and thank you so much for for giving us some time and giving us you know some candid answers on your part. And we just wish you the best, man. Thank you so much. Definitely, definitely. It was a pleasure talking to you guys, and and uh, I'm going to invite myself back. Yeah, all just, right. Just going to say, we'd love to have you come back. Love that it. would be love awesome, it. man. And we we'd appreciate yeah. that. All right, man. I'd love it. I'd love it. It was a joy talking to you guys. You too. Hi, right, Randall. Thanks, Thank you honey. so much. That's it for this 38th episode of Brown and Black. We'd like to thank Randall Park for coming on the show. And this episode was edited in part by Joshua Tirado. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. You can follow our comments and opinions on Brown Black Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And also check us out on YouTube. We'll talk to you next time on another episode of Brown and Black.